0: podcast one production. July 2019, I have just returned from Japan, where I helped to facilitate an agreement between the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges and the regulators of the world's financial system. Now, because of that meeting, it will become harder to use cryptocurrencies for money laundering and terrorist financing and all sorts of other financial crimes. Now, not long after I'd unpacked from that trip, I got a message from my friend, Mike. He'd gone to France on his holidays. Very nice. But all he wanted to talk about was, well, let's hear it from him. Hey, Mark, for my trip, I signed up to Up Banking. I was looking for a currency solution to make life
1: easy as I was going around France. And in the space of about two minutes, I got a digital card on Google
0: Pay on my phone. And I thought, this has just changed my life. You got to check it out. It's so freaking easy to do this stuff now. In one of the most beautiful and romantic cities in the world, Mike wants to talk about his new bank. But he persisted. He told me to download the app and give it a try. Okay, that's a little interesting. A bank that's not a branch, but just an app. All right, why not give it a try? What's the worst that could happen? Well, other than losing my money, I suppose, I downloaded the app I gave it all my particulars so that the bank could do KYC, that's short for know your customer. And that's how the bank knows it's able to do business with me. If they don't know me, they can't let me bank with them. It's against the law. But that was a small thing. It took all of two minutes to get that information into the app. And then... Then the app created and issued an Apple Pay card right there and put it into my Apple wallet. Now, if you're an Australian with an iPhone, you know how big a deal this is because Australia's big four banks, they gave Apple Pay the solo walk. It took almost three years until my big four bank offered me Apple Pay. And with this bank, it took less than three minutes. But that wasn't even the half of it. Something happened. Something I never expected. I stopped using cash. That new Apple Pay card, it was officially a debit MasterCard. It suddenly became the way I paid for everything. At first, because of the novelty, and then because of the utility. Tap, 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 pay, pay, pay. After three days, I realized I hadn't paid for anything with cash. And after a week, A week when I hadn't used cash at all for anything, anywhere, I knew I'd made a huge transition, fully on board with digital payments, and I hadn't expected that. I always tended to favor cash over credit cards. It was just cleaner, but a debit card connected directly to my bank account, that kept it all nice and clean. The only annoyance was that I had to keep topping it up with cash from my big four bank account because I kept spending it down. And that moment, That singular, sudden, unexpected moment, it led to this one. Because if that was happening to me, well, I can't be the only one. Take a look at your own wallet. Take a look at your own smartphone. Take a look at how what's on your wallet is now migrating to your smartphone. How your bank branch has suddenly started to become an app Banking is in the middle of a huge transformation. In 10 years, it's not going to look anything like it is today. In a billion seconds, 30 years, we might not even have the same idea of a bank. And you can see it right now because you're stopping using cash. You're tapping for everything. We're stopping using bank branches. We're using the app for everything. Everything we're starting to think of about banking is now different. Banking used to be boring. All of those years of being stale, flat, and profitable, they've given way to a new kind of banking, one that's still evolving, still in beta. Welcome to the age of the beta bank. Today I'm futurist Mark Pesci from the Next Billion Seconds podcast. And together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, Betabank explores a new world of neobanks. That's a fancy word meaning new banks. And we'll be learning how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds, starting with how it's already changing life in Australia today. And in this episode of Betabank, we're looking at if banking can change... Or is it just destined to be the big four forever and ever and ever? First off, let me welcome my friend and co-host, Andrew Davis, to Betabank. Welcome, Andrew.
2: G'day, Mark, and it's really great to join you as co-host on the series. It's such an exciting time right now in financial services, not just in Australia, but all around the world. So,
0: Andrew, listeners may remember you from series two of The Next Billion Seconds. We talked about the future of banking.
2: Yes, Mark, that's right. We spoke in mid-2018 about the change in landscape of financial services with the advent of things such as open banking and how that was creating opportunities for new services.
0: Okay, how did we end up here? Australia is... You know, a little unique. When I moved here, this is back in 2003, there were the four big banks, and everyone knows they're Combank, Westpac, NAB, and ANZ. And at the time, they just kind of seemed permanent to me as if that had always been that way in Australia. That's not actually true, is it?
2: No, that's right. In fact, Mark, each of the big four banks represents an amalgamation of a number of smaller banks. With the majority of bank mergers happening in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, but some as far back as the early 1900s. So this is almost like the T2000 Terminator that you know the metal terminator <laughs> sort of
0: pulling all the little bits of mercury back into itself and forming a giant terminator That's out of right. it.
2: That's right. But really, you know, the smaller banks being taken over by the bigger banks has largely been the norm for Australia over those last 50 years driven by the fact that Australia has a relatively small population spread over a really large area, therefore achieving economy scale is vital in being successful.
0: Because let's face it, if you're a bank and you need to have a branch in every medium-sized regional centre, so to have every centre more than two or 3,000 people, and you would... That's a lot of branches, and if you're a small bank, you can't afford to do that. But if you're a big bank, you can.
2: So that's right, and all of that has been happening over the years, but what we saw in 1990 is that the Australian government adopted a four-pillars policy, meaning that any proposed merger between the big four would be rejected. Now, this, however, has not stopped the big four to continue to acquire smaller banks, as was the case in 2008 when the CBA took over Bank West and Westpac took over St. George Bank. So, basically, the government said, okay, you four are big enough. You
0: cannot do the dance with one another. You can do the dance with any of the smaller banks, but you folks are basically too big, and we're not going to let you get any bigger. Now, that size is... You know, it's scary on one hand, but on the other hand, it's not really all bad, right? Australia's banks weathered the global financial crisis basically without bailouts. The only thing the government had to do is basically promise to backstop funds just so that people wouldn't get scared and put runs on the banks. But the banks themselves were never in any danger. And were there really any other banks around the world that managed that?
2: Mm, Well, in fact, the size and scale of the big four banks in Australia has certainly been seen as advantageous, particularly when times are tough. Now, the diversity of offerings across all the different customer segments as well as the different geographies, has allowed them to more easily digest those losses when they come up, but of course also absorb the large fines. Yes, such
0: as the $700 million fine that ComBank got handed in 2018 for violating money laundering laws, plus whatever eye-watering Oztrak fine is going to be slapped on Westpac for 23 million violations of money laundering laws. I mean, I've heard that that actually could be in the trillions of dollars if they went for a maximum fine on every violation. I'm sure they won't. And of course, this was from a long period of activity. And I know that in December of 2019, in fact, Westpac had to pay a $500 million fine. And that's completely unrelated to any of this. So there are clearly going to be some big fines to pay pay. So I guess it's a good thing that the big four are so big, but big also means slow. And as we've seen from every industry sector since capitalism got invented, incumbents, when they get big, they tend to stifle innovation. Let's look at Apple pay. It was very widely adopted in the USA almost immediately. And Australia has taken three years and that took three years During which the banks applied for a waiver from the Australian Consumer Competition Commission, the ACCC, so that they could go and collude and bargain with Apple together. And the ACCC looked at this and said, no, no way. But... In the time it took the ACCC to decide that, the banks got all sorts of breathing room to work out their own digital payment strategies. They tried to bring some to market and they never really succeeded. So basically in 2019, three of the four banks have surrendered to Apple Pay. And in 2010, there were just over 200 million monthly credit card transactions in Australia. By March of 2019, it was more than $800 a month. So people are really getting into tapping. They're really getting into using those credit cards. And so you have to wonder why this disconnect. I mean, Andrew, are Australia's banks in an innovation drought?
2: Mm, Good question. From my experience, Mark, banks up until now have wanted to develop new capabilities in their own way and in their own time. And for many of them, investing heavily in innovation programs has not been a strategic imperative. Yes, they all spend a lot of money every year on technology, but the majority of this spend is to run the bank and to keep the lights on. And let's not downplay that, because if your bank is not up and running, that
0: causes a lot of problems. In the middle of 2019, CBA had a massive failure, I think it was on a Saturday, of all of their FPOS terminals all around Australia and essentially commerce stopped because it's so important to the fabric of the country that people can tap their credit cards and make their purchases everywhere. So when that infrastructure fails, it affects everything in Australia. So this is the stuff that although it's not sexy and maybe it's not terribly innovative, they absolutely
2: have to do right. Correct. And the more they invest in technology, the more they have to set aside future budgets to maintain that technology. Yeah. So while every bank has product teams that are meant to keep that bank's offering in line with market need, and this has mostly been done via small tweaks and changes, but there's really more and more the view that banks have lost touch with their customers and therefore don't appreciate how the consumer wants to make use of financial services in the digital age, and that's opened up a gap. Right, and you
0: can certainly tell from my own experience that as soon as I got a really good Digital debit card, I just went for it. I just started using it for all of my payments. And so that's telling you that there is a gap because if I'd gotten that from my big four bank, I would have been
2: all in on it. Exactly. So that drought of innovation has really created an opportunity in that market for new services and new entrants.
0: And that's exactly the opportunity that the new banks are trying to exploit. So coming up, We'll be talking to the prophet of New Banking, someone who has been shouting about that opportunity for over a decade. And we'll ask him if the banks have started to listen. Andrew, Australia cannot be in a unique situation here. Banks all over the world seem like they're somehow stuck in a rut.
2: That's right, Mark, but Australia is not alone, and in fact, I see this issue the world over. I'm very fortunate to do a lot of work in emerging markets across Asia and Africa, where in many respects, banks face even more significant issues. In such markets, it's not uncommon for the bank population to be less than 50%. And this has been seen as acceptable by the banks and even government.
0: There's this terms banked and unbanked. Let's unroll those a little bit because in a sense, almost everyone in Australia has a bank account, right? So what is this bank unbanked that we're talking about? So
2: imagine growing up and being in a country, being in a geography, where either there's no physical bank branch within kui of you, Mm. within hundreds of kilometers of you, Mm -hmm. or even if there is, you don't have a need to open an account because it just doesn't form part of your life and or you don't even qualify to be a customer of the bank because of the fees that go with it and the other criteria that banks... So, so
0: I'm not saving enough money for the bank to be earning enough money to make it affordable for them to give me a bank account to put my money into that I can't
2: save. That's right. And in so in these markets, you know, most people exist... Outside of the world of banking, they exist with cash, they exist by bartering and so on. And and I
0: remember when I was in East Africa as well, when I was in Rwanda, that you need know, to go through all these villages and there'd be a fair number of people at several thousand people in a village, but there, and there would be shops, but there wouldn't be a bank branch. You'd have to actually go to Kigali, to a capital city, or to a major regional center mm. before you saw any bank branches at all.
2: That's right. And even in those large cities, there's not hundreds of bank branches. So people still have to not just make the effort to go to the branch, but then stand in a queue for a while and so on. But the good thing is in recent times, mobile phone penetration has increased. And other organizations, for example, telcos, have spotted an opportunity and stepped in with alternative offerings based on mobile money, often with regulatory support. So what is mobile money? So mobile money is in fact not unlike in some ways what you see today with uh, your Apple Wallet. It's where on your phone you're accessing some stored value that may not come out of a bank account. It may be stored value being held by your telco. So in the case of Australia, think Telstra, think Optus, and they're holding some stored value on your behalf and you're able to transact with that, to pay bills with that, to receive uh, money from others with that, and then walk down the road to a corner store and cash out some of that value or top up some of that value.
0: And I mean, you think about it, Australia Post actually does some of this already for us. We can go pay your bills at Australia Post. I, you can't do an Australia Post savings account online. There are other countries such as Japan where you can do that. So there, there are... Other things that have been like this for a while, but all of this is literally happening on the mobile and it's all happening via text messages, right? That's right.
2: And so what we see is that banks are facing these challenges in practically every market around the globe and the role of incumbents may never be the same. Okay. So to kick off this series, let's take a step back both in time and in perspective to understand how the world of banking has changed. Our guest, Brett King, is an Amazon best-selling author an award-winning speaker he advised the Obama administration on the future of banking and is the founder and executive chairman of US Neobank, Moven. Brett was also one of the first people to truly understand how customer behavior and technology will change the future of financial services. So Brett joins us from his studio in New York City. And Brett, welcome to Beta Bank. Thanks for having me, guys. So Brett, we first met in 2007 when I was based in Hong Kong and working for a large Asia-centric global bank and you were operating in the financial services space as part consultant, part visionary. What were you seeing at that time, which then led to your first book in 2010 called Bank
1: 2.0? I had prepared a report for HSBC in 2005 at the behest of two guys in the organization, Paul Thurston, who headed up retail or personal financial services, as it was called back then, and uh, also Peter Brooks, who was the head of uh, e-channel delivery, e-services. This was before we had multi-channel. It was just the e-channel, was the internet. Um, And uh, I prepared this report looking at 20, 30 years, how HSBC would need to adapt to changing consumer behaviour around digital. Uh, you know, Brooksy and I, we, we uh, you know, uh, floated the report around. It got a lot of attention, um, got us to Canary Wharf. Um, but uh, there was a fair bit of institutional resistance around the concept that, internet would surpass branch activity and that eventually mobile would surpass internet activity. Um, And, um, you know, that, that institutional resistance to that idea really led me to thinking that there must be hundreds the thousands, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals like me, facing that same level of frustration at trying to get these incumbent banks transforming, trying to get them to recognise what was happening in digital, and so I decided to be the voice for that community.
2: So, what about in the years since that time, in since two thousand and ten? You know, how would you describe the journey that the world's been on in terms of financial services? So, I think there was.
1: Um, Uh, You know, some resistance institutionally, uh, initially, that the modality of banking was going to change. But there was a few early signals. Um, You know, we had some er early alt currencies. You'll remember Second Life and uh, Linden dollars and QQ coins in China. Um, so some very early experimental sort of edgy stuff. And then, of course, in 2008, you had a bunch of things happening. You had M-Pesa M- come along in uh, Kenya. Again, very early in the pace, super disruptive technology there.
0: And again, that's a, that's an early mobile money system, sort of the prototype for all of the others, right? Pesa
1: is a Swahili word for money. So it's literally a M- money you know, mobile money. Um and that became sort of the template for a lot of the mobile money initiatives that we see around the world. 98% of uh, Kenyans today, um, you know, have an M-Pesa account. 40% of uh, Kenyan GDP runs across the M-Pesa rail. So it's, it's pretty significant. But that, those these things were all starting. You know, at the same time, you had Twitter uh, coming along. You had uh, Square. Um, you had uh, Bitcoin. You had all of these early things happening. Um, you know, around this sort of period. But it wasn't until around 2013 that actually there was a sort of a writ large acceptance that fintech was actually a thing. And that it may represent um, something that's disruptive. So uh, prior to 2013, most of what we we saw in the sector was denial. Um, denial that, you know, these things are really going to make an impact. They're not really going to displace competitors. Banking is different. But, of course, you, know, you hear that from every industry when they're faced with disruption. And the result is always the same. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I knew as a technologist having studied history, I knew that fintech would win out. And that we would have some some large changes, but it took until about 2013, 2014 for incumbents to actually sort of go, hmm, maybe there is something to this digital transformation.
0: Now, here we are, I think you're up to your sixth book, and we have a lot of digital-only type banks, what we call neobanks here in Australia coming to market. We'll be talking to some of them over the series What I'm starting to sense here is that in some sense, particularly in Australia, but I think also the larger mainstream banks around the world still don't seem to be getting the message or they're just so big that it's taking them a long time to tune in. So are we starting to see almost the formation of a two speed banking system where you have lots of new banks that can move very quickly, be very innovative, be these digital first, mobile first banks, whereas the older, more established, larger banks are really going to be consistently falling behind
1: yeah I I think the greatest example of that right now is the UK market and the Chinese market where you know you have challenges now that um, are actually getting real market share and this was something that we were told you know four or five years ago was never going to happen right, by the incumbents. But, of course, now if you look at the UK market, Revolut, Monzo, Starling, um, N26, th- these are sort of household names. Monzo um, says one in 20 Britons has a Monzo account today, so, you know, um, based on, on on their data. Um, then you've got the largest challenger bank in the world in China, WeBank, with 180 million customers. I mean, we're talking about a bank now Twice the customer base of J.P. Morgan Chase. So how could you possibly argue that it's not making an effect that they're not taking market share? But what's become really um, clear is the reasons the reasons that they're taking market share. So number one. Is obviously cooler brands, great customer experience, more in line with digital natives' expectations of a mobile banking experience. Not something that's been adapted from the internet and fudged onto a smaller screen, but actually sort of purpose built for mobile. And then the second piece of that is the uh, acquisition strategy or the scalability of these solutions. So for WeBank, um, you know, a- a- as sort of this largest challenger bank in the world, there. Ability to acquire customers and the cost of acquisition, you know, we're talking about uh, less than five RMB to acquire a, a bank account. That's less than a dollar US to acquire a, a new bank, um, new customer in China. And there's no incumbent bank in the world operating bank branches that could ever realistically hope for that type of acquisition cost. So, this is where the market share is happening. This digital. Uh, specialisation around acquisition and customer onboarding in within a mobile app is changing the market share. And and here's the thing is, you know, if you, if you look at the West, only about 5% of banks in the West have mobile account opening. And so that's where the battle lines are being drawn.
2: So, Brett, looking forward then, what do you think a better bank or perfect bank, you know, would look like and how far away are we from seeing that?
1: So I think... Um, you know, what is a bank is a pretty good question. That's uh, something we've debated for some time. Um, I was in Lagos, Nigeria last week advising the the central bank governor there, and we were discussing the nature of a deposit-taking organisation, and they have a law that requires deposit-taking organisations to be registered as a bank. And yet, you know, does that mean you force GoJack in Indonesia or, you know, um, Grab in you know, so, ASEAN as- as- to become a bank because they're now storing value in a mobile wallet, in a super app, you know. Um, so this is where the, the lines blur. But ultimately, I think from a c- customer perspective, if you look out 10, 20 years, um, banking is just going to be part of your world. So the utility of what you get from a bank today will be embedded in your you know technology ecosystem so you know w- what is the equivalent of a smartphone um you know in, in that period of time whether you're wearing smart glasses with a with a head-up display or you, you're probably using voice-based interfaces like uh, you know next, gener- next generation Alexa or Siri um, you know these types of technologies you will have money stored somewhere in the cloud Right? And that may be connected to a, a chartered bank at some, you know, point in in, in, in the the Tech Stack but you'll have money stored in the cloud and that's your account balance or balances. That'll be surfaced through this technology layer. You'll obviously be able to see how much money you have, but that'll be sort of collected from um, a disparate number of organizations underneath, some fintechs, some incumbent banks, some technology players, uh, pure players in, in that ecosystem. And But the really different aspect of how that money will then, or how that utility of banking fits in your world. So it'll be highly, tailored to you, it'll be based, uh, you'll, you'll get prompts based on behaviour, um, geolocation, you know, other sorts of uh, triggers uh, that, that, that come up, um, you know, you, you will say, you know, let, let me pay Andrew 20 bucks and it happens, you know. It's, you, you don't want, I won't need to know your account number, I won't need to know which bank you're with. None of that, um, that infrastructure that we've had that are sort of framed the products of financial services will exist because banking essentially will be embedded experiences, embedded in this technology layer, tied together by artificial intelligence. You won't need to sign a piece of paper. You won't need to present a 16 digit you know, pan or a, a, you know, a credit card number in this future world, because your technology layer will know who you are and it will know by your behavior and by biometrics, uh, such as facial recognition or voice voice print, it'll know how to secure your identity, you know, in respect to financial transactions. So you'll never sign a piece of paper to get access to financial services in the future. It'll just be there. If you need credit, um, that will either be an explicit ask for credit, or a scenario like when you walk into a grocery store and your salary hasn't hit the account, and you need money to buy groceries. Your phone or your your you know smart device ecosystem will work that out and solve that problem, either explicitly asking you for permission or just to, you know based on previous behavior and rules, just to do it for you.
0: Wow, Brett, this has been an amazing look into the future of banking. And it has been an enormous pleasure to have you on our first episode of Beta Bank. You've set the tone for the series.
1: Guys, thanks for having me on and um, thanks for what you're doing.
0: So, Andrew, listening to Brett, he's asking some really fundamental questions, right? I mean, and the core of that is what is a bank. And this is the thing, people weren't asking that question even 10 years ago. We might not be asking that question in 10 years because we have completely redefined what a bank is. A bank is now something that's actually really in process, isn't it?
2: That's right. I mean, banks largely now um, help to pull all of the plumbing together. You know, we'll be talking uh, through the series about what it means to uh, do a payment and what it means to receive a payment and so on. So banks really exist to sit across all of that technical complexity. But what we're realizing is less and less, we need a bank to actually facilitate our day-to-day lives.
0: So... One of the ways that he sort of showed this is this idea that there's only 5% of the banks in the Western world, which includes Australia, have mobile account opening. And, of course, I opened this episode with the story of my opening a mobile account with one of the banks and how amazing that was, how how good it was, and how it changed the way that I was using payments If that's such a big step change for us, does that mean that the 95% of the banks are really missing the boat right now?
2: Yes. And, uh, you know, so part of the issue here is to what degree do they appreciate that the market is looking for that and expecting that at a behavioral level? And then to what degree are they being held back because their systems aren't designed to uh, process transactions and data in a real-time way? Maybe they're not talking to each other. Do they need then connectivity to external databases to validate your address and so on and so on? So the issue here and the challenge here is that legacy banks are really um, being weighed down by the design of their systems and business processes, which were based on how things have been done for the last 20 or 30 years so
0: we keep on coming back to this idea of the two-speed banking system and that at the heart of that is either denial that the banks don't see why they need to change or disruption that they actually can't change because it's too disruptive to what they actually are how does a bank get around that or or do they
2: Well, sometimes we even see incumbents now trying to build a fresh bank to bring to market with a totally different technology stack, different branding, and so on, because they see that as really the only way to get around the challenges they face in their existing business.
0: So this actually brings us now to the next point that we'll be asking, which is if you build that bank up from the ground up, What does that then mean for me as a customer? Now, that's personal banking. That's retail banking. That's the topic for our next episode of Betabank. Now, if you want to learn more about neobanking, cruise on over to our website at betabank.show. You're going to find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. Betabank.show. If you listen to any of my other podcasts, Cryptonomics, The Next Being Cars, The Next Being Seconds. Just open your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P E S C E Pesci. Big thanks to Brett King for making the time to come on our show. Bitabank was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Andrew Davis. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production by Matt Nikolic. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, search Mark Pesci Betabank, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Thank you for listening.